Hello, podcast land. Hello, tour guide, tell all family. Uh, we are back. It is September. It is hopefully getting cooler. Uh, we are here to talk to you guys about all things friendly and tour guidey and history and Washington, D.C. And it is very exciting. We are friendly neighborhood tour guides in D.C. Uh, first, though, introductions. As always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are. Hello, Rebecca. Nailed it. <laughs> Hello, family. We are back. It's September. This is season three. We're having a, such a fun time. Thank you guys for coming on a journey. this journey with us. We are happy whether this is the first episode or whether you've been with us since Alice Roosevelt Longworth. We are just happy that you're here uh, and you we're in your ear holes and you're enjoying uh, our history and our sass. Um, we are having such a good time. We are so grateful that you're here. We are also giving tours, so that's the whole deal with this pod. We give tours as well, uh, and it's fall, so the weather is cooling down, and it's a great time to come out in the Washington, D.C. area and take a tour with us because I guarantee you, as great as we are on the pod, we are even better and dare I say, cuter in person. So come to our uh, Take a Tour with us, uh, and it's really great. I also want to mention, uh, before we kind of jump in here, uh, if you're a longtime listener of the pod, we kind of have evolved a little bit of a cycle here. February is Black History Month, so we talk about African-American-related episodes. March is Women's History Month, so we talk about women's history-related episodes, uh, although both African-American history and women's history is American history. It's, it's all uh, history. All connected. Um, in the last week, uh, last episode in uh, May, we talk about something military related for Memorial Day. First episode in November, we talk about an election related topic, so stay tuned for that. But in September, we talk about labor history, y'all, because labor history is also American history. And Becca and I are super into some labor history. Last year, we talked about the Johnstown flood. We also also talked about uh, the assassination of President McKinley. We have done an episode for women's history about Frances Perkins, the first, the first female uh, Secretary of Labor. Uh, so we have done some labor-related episodes. We love ourselves some labor-related history. And so that's what we're into here for September, two labor-related episodes. This one a little bit more so than the other one, uh, the second one. But uh, this is, we're going to do some labor stuff. Becca, are you ready? I am. A uh, couple of things uh, before we start. Just a slight bit of content warning. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about police violence in this episode. So I just want to give people a little heads up here. There's a little bit. This is a, a serious topic we're going to dig into. And there's some some grisliness to it and a little mm -hmm. bit of darkness. I also do want to shout out the fact that we're going to be doing a story set in Chicago. And we <laughs> have wonderful, wonderful tour guide um, colleagues in Chicago, Free Tours by Foot Chicago. So if you're in the Chicago area visiting Chicago, we'll put a link in the show notes to our Chicago team, but they're fabulous. I've done their tours, they're fantastic. So if any of this makes you like wanna go see the Windy City, definitely check out our friends in Chicago. They're like us, but uh, with Midwestern accents. They're yes, but very similar otherwise. So yeah, this is a Chicago episode. We're gonna talk about the Haymarket Affair. You might hear it referred to as things like the Haymarket Riot. We're gonna call it an affair or incident because I do not believe riot is an accurate depiction of what happens. So that's just great. Me. 
Before we do that, though, just a little bit of background to kind of place us a bit. We're setting the story in Chicago. Chicago is basically the Wild West of the United States in the 19th century. We do not truly sort of span coast to coast initially. Chicago is kind of the border of civilized United States. And when I mean it takes a while to get developed there, it takes a while. They don't get their first college, Northwestern, until 1850. It is a city very much made up of the people who are escaping. We talk about this a little bit in our Wild West episodes where we've talked about Gold Rush and the gunfight at the OK Corral. But people coming to Chicago are fleeing trouble. They're fleeing difficulty. They're coming there because they have nowhere else to go. And they're coming there because they can start over. Um, it really starts to emerge as a city of influence right about the time the Civil War is breaking out. And I, of course, will connect this to Lincoln. Uh, Illinois is the land of Lincoln. Lincoln wins the Republican nomination there in 1860. So this will give you an idea of the politics of the city. They host the Republican National uh, Convention in 1860. Uh, and so this is a city that's very much rooted in unionism. Proving that, first of all, there is nothing, absolutely nothing Becca cannot link to Lincoln. So <laughs> we're, we're on it. Um, yes, Chicago is the Wild West. It is, Chicago is such a great city. There's a lot of really great history yeah. uh, in Chicago. And so we got Lincoln, post-Civil War, it booms. There's very rapid growth. This is not unique to Chicago. There's a lot of rapid growth nationwide, but Chicago just sort of takes off. In Chicago a has land, tons yes. of land. It's uh, perfectly situated for our growing rail system. Yes. So it's really well situated to benefit from the boom because the East Coast is already getting densely packed. Yep. Chicago's got space. Tons of space, tons. They're right on the water, so they can, they're, you know, all sorts of, um, they can ship goods north. They've got rail that can connect to the west. It's great. Um, you have, they are called, it's called the workshop of the world. Uh, and so you have a lot of infrastructure. And you also have, like, unlike New York and Boston, which had been cities for a long time, it takes, time to figure out where you're going to put all of this big industry. Where in Chicago, that just, they put it where they want to because that's the first thing that's going there. Uh, and so all sorts of great stuff happens. October, October 1871, there's a great fire. Um, that's kind of, there are a few fire, fires in uh, Chicago's history, uh, but this is the big one. Uh, it destroys about four miles long and one miles wide of um, the sort of downtown area. $220 million of property damage, which is in 1871 money, which is a lot. Yeah, it, it's devastating and it's a tragedy. And yet, in many ways, it's actually a beautiful way for Chicago to be reborn, even just shortly after its first big boom, because all the wooden structures are either burned or everybody goes, heck, we don't want these anymore. And so they start rebuilding exceptionally modern. They outpace every East Coast city in terms of modern construction. They build the first skyscraper in the world in 1885 that's going to really reshape the city, the Great Fire, and it's going to put a lot of power into the hands of the industrialists. So the people that are be rebuilding the city after the Great Fire are going to have a lot of political clout. They're going to have a lot of control, particularly of the media. The men that rebuild are going to be heroes to the city, understandably, but it also means that they're going to have an incredible amount of power and influence, which is going to matter here, especially because Chicago is going to annex a bunch of townships and bring in a lot of communities into the orbit of Chicago. So the city's growing, it's taking in all these little townships, and you've got a lot of industrialist capitalists who are now really, really controlling the city. And you also have a huge wave of immigration. 
Someone's got to do the work. Someone's got to do the work. Exactly right. Chicago's economy is going to boom and attracts immigrants from, and this is, again, not unique to Chicago. This is the 1870s, 80s, 90s. There's a huge wave of immigration coming to the United States, uh, and a lot of them are going to end up in Chicago. That's where the jobs are. They want people to literally build this city. By the 1880s, an estimated 65 to 70% of the population is foreign-born or born in the U.S. of foreign parents so these are first generation and they're coming to the United States you've got a lot of people who don't speak English well or particular or not at all or for sure English is their second language uh, you've got primarily because this is the Midwest German Polish Czech those are going to be your um, your main immigrant groups, but you've got people coming from all over the place uh, to come to Chicago. That's where the opportunity is. Um, the labor movement is also going to grow because, like everywhere else, workers' conditions are not really great here. Um, if you want a sort of preview of some of this, listen to our Johnstown Flood episode. Uh, that sort of gives you a taste of how workers are treated, but they're treated terribly. Uh, 60 hours a week, six days a week. So if you do the math, that's 10 hours a day. Yay, for six days. And they're paid $1.50 a day. If Which you're... obviously is, you know, adjusted for inflation. That's a different wage than it would be today, but is terrible. And this is this is tough labor. This is stockyards. This is manufacturing. It's mechanical. It's tough labor. And it's just important to note that like 70% population number is really mind boggling because a majority of the people who live there are the laborers. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, this new wave of Americans, these new immigrants, but they have very little power. Many of them don't vote or have difficulty getting to the ballot box. Many of them have very little say in who's running their city. And the only little bit of power they might be able to harness is among themselves, among labor, among unions. And so it's not surprising that we start to see trades unions and things growing in this time, but it's also not surprising that the men with power who make up the minority of the city are gonna do what they can do to tamp down on that as quickly as possible. And I would like to mention something here. This is, again, corruption is not unique to Chicago, particularly at this time. Um, there's That's a part of the big city, but it seems to take on a special flavor and brazenness in Chicago. And Chicago is a great city, but they have a long history of few people making the decisions. And in fact, to wit, this, the nickname the Windy City is actually has nothing to do with the weather. It is actually windier in Washington, D.C. than it is in Chicago. It's called the Windy City because of the corruption. That's why. It is not all Al Capone, although he certainly was very corrupt and very bad. That's prohibition. That's many years later. But there's it kind of grows out of a thing. And so you're seeing they're preventing people from voting. There's a lot of you're supposed to vote the straight ticket. This is your very like this is the time in New York when there's the Tammany Hall machine. And so similar things are happening in Chicago. You vote at your bar. You vote with your like cohort. You are there. If you're an immigrant, they don't particularly make it easy for you uh, to vote. And so you have a lot of people who are disenfranchised or poorly enfranchised. They have terrible jobs. They're working long hours. And when you work long hours, it's hard to find leisure time to do anything else. So 
this is a lot of sort of the brew that all this is going to come into. You have a lot of clashes between organizers and labor, uh, employers. Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to organize what limited um, resources they have to organize workers. And you see a lot of very blatant union busting tactics. They're blacklisting employees. So if you have been known to talk about a union at one shop, you get fired, you go to another one, they will blacklist you from different jobs. So you can't get a job. They'll lock out out um, workers to prevent them from coming in and unionizing. Uh, they're going to use uh, union busters. Like this is all very typical stuff uh, at this time. They're they um, one of the things they do, and we talked about this when we talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Francis Perkins is they're going to lock employees into their um, employee uh, uh, into their office or into the um, yard or whatever. <laughs> space not to prevent them from stealing stuff although certainly that but to prevent them from stealing their time so that they can't then leave go take a smoke break and unionize and organize and talk to each other and so they're preventing in every way that they can including the physical space of their work to prevent them from unionizing and we use sort of the euphemism clashes, but we're talking about violence, yes. right? These employers um, will utilize things like the police force to bust bust up things, knock heads if needed. So we're building up to a particular event, but it's important to keep in mind that there's a series of these sort of events happening really in about the 15 years leading up to Haymarket. Yes. The um, economic, so 1882 to 86, there's an economic recession, which is kind of a bummer. And this is going to give rise to more labor activity, uh, more some, there's socialist groups, you'll see the rise of anarchist groups. Uh, and so you're seeing when the economy gets worse, they're paid even less, they're going to, they have less to lose. And so they're going to continue agitation for better treatment and better uh, conditions. Uh, there's going to be call for an eight hour workday which is it is astonishing to me that that was like something we had to organize and agitate for like eight hours is a long time and it sort um, of takes this recession for them to kind of sort of say like look it's not going to get any better for us the least we can do is try to set a limit to a reasonable work day exactly. um but that the recession means too that people are struggling it's tough times and they're starting to be there starts to be an appeal to being parts of these groups if you hadn't been before. And there also does start to be an appeal of some of the more revolutionary or radical ideas that start getting float, floated out. And I think it is good to note that when we're talking about labor movement, that's a very broad scape and that there are groups like Knights of Labor, um, which is sort of one of the prominent groups of the era, which is very much a, we wanna organize, but how can we work together? How can we be reasonable? We're not here to fight with police. We're not here to cause violence. We are good, uh, you know, Christian members of, of society. Mm -hmm. And then you have much more militant labor advocates that are openly socialist or anarchist and saying labor is part of larger, so or labor's role here is part of larger social ills, societal ills, and we want to address that. And we will do that through force if necessary. Yes. So you have a bunch of different um, different people with different aims. They are agitating for different things. And some of them are moderate. Some of them are far much less so. And you've got, there's, they're clashing with police. And, we, you know, we're, the cl clash is very much a euphemism. Again, we say this like with every labor episode we do. 
every single labor uh, concession that it, we have, that we enjoy, has been died for by, in so many different ways. Like people, unions are uh, on the front lines, they're picketing, they're striking, this, the police are engaged in this. This is violent uh, confrontations between uh, labor and um, the owners of these factories and uh, uh, things. And so this is a, an explosive atmosphere. Um, in the summer of 1884, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions hold a convention and sets the day of May 1st, 1886 as the date that an eight-hour workday will become standard. So this is really one of the things that comes out of Haymarket is May Day. Uh, May 1st becomes International Workers' Day. Um, and so this is going to become because of this. So May Day is the sort of big, uh, one of the big labor holidays after this. Federal and state employees in Illinois are already covered by an eight-hour workday, but A, there's no enforcement. Yeah, it's like technically the law says you're not supposed to work more than eight hours. And B, many private employers force their workers to sign waivers as a condition of employment, which I don't, I'm not an expert on labor law, but God, that cannot be legal. Like what? (laughs) So it's sort of like, you've got this eight hour work, you've got this push for the eight hour work day. Some people are gonna go, wait a second, if you're working for the government or you're contracting with the government, you get an eight hour work day, but that is on paper and not in practice for many, Mm -hmm. many people. And I think it's almost like kind of nice that the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions says, hey, we're gonna give everyone two years to get on board with this. You've got two years to figure out how your business operates with an eight hour work day. And so, you know, that's, that's, I think, a pretty fair thing, two years sure. to figure it out. But you can imagine this is building up. It's like a little ticking clock um, that on May 1st of 1886, the eight-hour workday is happening. And many trades groups, unions, workers say, if our employers are not going to get on board with this, we're going to strike. Yes. And so there's a massive amount of organized, planned, peaceful striking and protesting. Because, you know, employers could just go along with the eight-hour workday, but they decide not to. So what is your only course of action as a laborer but to strike? Right, is to remove, to not offer your labor. That's the whole, that's the bargain that you, this is why we need to teach labor history in high school, because you're trading your labor for a wage. And so if you're not getting what you want, you're, as the laborer, your concession, your ability is to remove your labor from the equation and to withhold it. And so May 1st, 1886, which is the big deadline, is a Saturday. Which don't don't you worry though they worked on Saturdays. They worked Saturdays, so it was the perfect day. <laughs> it's the perfect day. Um, thousands of workers go on strike thousands across the country, across but but specifically in Chicago, yes. they think perhaps forty thousand working stri- workers were striking with another eighty thousand out in the streets, Good demonstrating, event. marching, showing their support. This is a big deal. It's a big event. It's a big event. Um, they have a song too, which we will not sing because. I'm not a singer, uh, but basically the eight, it's called the eight hour song and it gives rise to the popular phrase, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for what we will. Which I remember even growing up in a union household, that was often a slogan you'd still see on your bumper stickers and stuff, mm-hmm. which is sort of eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for leisure. You know, the idea that that is what a human being is entitled to, right. which I think is fair. Right. Yeah. A third of your day should be working. A third of your day should be sleeping and then you do whatever you want. So unions have given employers two years, 
eight-hour workday. Most of the private employers in Chicago do not comply, so workers go on strike en masse. These are planned, organized, overwhelmingly peaceful demonstrations that continue the first, second, and third. Mm -hmm. And as we get to May 3rd, I want to introduce us to August Spies. Spies is a German immigrant who comes to Chicago in the 1870s, so he's part of this massive wave of immigration. He actually came from a somewhat privileged background, but came to the U.S. for new opportunities and was pretty shocked by what he saw in the immigrant experience. He's going to essentially become radicalized in many ways. Uh, he'll join the Socialist Labor Party due to many of the injustices that he witnesses. And um, he actually kind of spearheads a takeover of that group in Chicago. And he is part of a group that launches the International Working People's Association. So he becomes a very big leader in this movement in Chicago. He's going to be editor of a radical German language newspaper. I'm not sure if I've got the pronunciation on this, Rebecca. Do you want to give it a uh, shot? It's called the Arbeiter Zeitung. You have uh. it so much better. I would just butcher it. And I am German, <laughs> but you got it. So he's editor of this radical German language newspaper. And I think it's important to note that there was much more diversity in the media at the time. The mainstream press, absolutely English speaking. These are the big newspapers, your Chicago Tribune and Herald. But there were many, dozens and dozens of foreign language press. And this is where the workers are learning about current events and what's going on, but also talking to each other and organizing. And there would have been a lot of opportunity for that through their foreign language press. I would like to mention two things here. First of all, Arbeiter Zeitung means workers daily. Like, yeah. that's literally what it means. Uh, and also, like, German is the second most spoken language uh, other than English in the United States right up until the First World War. So this is not, it's not unusual that there would be lots of immigrants, lots of immigrants, people people speaking German. Uh, my family background is German, and they were spoken German in the home right up until about the same time. So the this is not unusual. This particular paper, though, becomes a radical sort of workers newspaper. So this sort of partly because of Spies uh, becomes sort of a radical workers newspaper. Um, he's about 30 years old too. He's really young. I know, really young. <laughs> um, and seen as like the next generation of like leadership for immigrants and for workers. And so he's like, uh, he's, he speaks at rallies, encouraging uh, strikers, encouraging workers to hold together across these different unions. So he's encouraging like union solidarity uh, amongst different industries and people who don't know each other. And this is really the sort of, he kind of grasps what, he's not alone in this, but he grasps that the idea of unions is we are as strong as when we stick together. So that all of us depriving our employers of our labor is what makes us strong. And so to contextualize, May 1st, we know this is going to start. Employers knew this was going to happen. So they knew workers were going to go on strike. So they are going to get strike breakers. They're going to pay people to cross picket lines. And that's what they do on May 1st and May 2nd to Sunday. So maybe not as much. But on May 3rd, they've got these strike breakers coming in. And so you can imagine you've been out striking for three days. You've been out demonstrating. You're watching these um, strike breakers who often just had to make a buck. Yes. These are people who are off, often also just needing to get by um, coming to and from work. And so at the end of the work bell day, or so when the work bell rings at the McCormick Reaper plant, there is a clash. Yes. Striking workers are going to clash with strike breakers. And the police are there, as is often the case, and they are gonna fire shots into the crowd. We know that at least two workers were killed. There's a lot of good evidence that it was up to six casualties. Yes. 
So first of all, strike breakers are also known as scabs. That's a more modern parlance that you'll hear. And I remember as a kid being told, you do not ever cross a picket line, period, end of story. Do not do it. And so this, if you, and this is a different climate, like we grew up in a different climate for labor than, you know, the 1880s, but crossing a picket line to work is the biggest no-no. And so if you're doing that, you need the work. And so this is a violent clash between police, between strike breakers and between strikers. So this is a big chaotic thing. Um, the, this is an act of police violence. And as it you can imagine this is going to really rile up the striking workers, uh, as well as several anarchists and socialist groups who are, uh, they're all there, they're all, this is all kind of in the same sort of general area, they're all together, and they are going to print up flyers calling for a rally the next day in Haymarket Square. Haymarket Square was the commercial center of Chicago. As it was uh, rebuilt after the Great Fire. So this is sort of where the commercial center sort of refocuses. Uh, it is the Randolph and Des Plaines streets. So that's kind of where we're at downtown. Flyers are German and English and initially call for workers to arm themselves. Which is not ideal language, maybe, no. if... Uh, given what plays out, Spies actually says, I'm not going to go to this rally unless you change the language on the flyer. He is worried about what that could mean because he's witnessed what the police have done. Telling workers to arm themselves is almost inevitably calling for problems. And so um, he goes, look, I'm not going to come if that's the language we're using. And they, they backtrack. They basically produce new flyers and distribute about 20,000 new ones with the new wording. The thing is, they destroy a lot of the old flyers, yeah, but not no, all of them. No. And that's going to come back up later. So, yes, they all they have the new wordings distributed. And then we get to May 4th, 1886. So this is now Tuesday. This is Tuesday. The rally begins in the evening. Light rain. Uh, everything starts out peacefully, which is usually how it does start out. Um, speakers include Speece, Albert Parsons, and Reverend Samuel Fielden. Parsons is a Confederate veteran who evolves into a radical political actress, activist, partly because of his wife, Lucy. And then, Becca, I, I feel like you want to talk about Lucy. Yeah, like, here. I'm already like, we'll make a note. We're going to do an episode probably on Lucy and Albert separately sure. at some point. Like, first of all, like, I, I really want to stick to the labor focus. But this guy who starts out as this heavy, hardcore Confederate ends up being like, oh, maybe uh, immigrants and people of color aren't so bad. Ends up being like, you know what? The whole system's rigged. Ends up basically a radical socialist, borderline anarchist. I find it fascinating. You what an evolution in his lifetime. Um, but his wife, Lucy, she's born, she's she's a mixed birth. She's born enslaved. She ends up working for the Freedmen's Bureau after the Civil War. She becomes an organizer specifically of women sewing workers. And she really is sort of an early feminist in terms of recognizing that many of the trades unions and working groups don't include women, even though many women, particularly immigrant women and women of color, have to labor because they need the money. Um, they economically have to. Yes. And so um, she really kind of pushes him <laughs> you know, further and further and further into being a political figure. And she's a very powerful activist herself. He becomes, um, Parsons becomes a very prominent speaker in Chicago. He starts as a socialist 
um, in the scene, but he really morphs into embracing anarchy and anarchism um, as it existed in this time. So I really, again, Confederate to anarchist, which I don't know, maybe there is an overlap there. I don't know, but that's a, that's a, that's quite the transition. I lo- I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. And he also is hesitant about going to this Haymarket rally because he is fearing the violence. He had been in Chicago. He had been organizing and marching with workers in Chicago and had heard about police opening fire at McCormick and was worried that this the same thing would happen. But he changes his mind because he hears that Fielden and, and part, uh, that Spees are gonna be there too. So he shows up and he shows up kind of late. He doesn't even show up until Spees is speaking. So Parsons is not even there when the event begins. Fielden is a British immigrant who becomes a self-employed teamster in Chicago and a lay minister um, of uh, Methodist Episcopal Church. He is a frequent speaker, an eloquent speaker on labor rights. So he is already involved in this movement. He's quite famous. Like Parsons, he had initially not planned to go, but eventually he does show up and agrees to speak for between 10 and 20 minutes. There are anywhere between 1,000 and 2,500 attendees, which reports are going to vary on this, uh, but it is way less than the 20,000 that was anticipated. And they have, because they had anticipated 20,000 people, there is that sort of a commensurate number of police uh, overlooking this. So there is a large number of police vis-a-vis who eventually shows up for uh, the rally. So there's a lot of police and officers watching what's happening here. We have talked about this in previous episodes. It's really hard to get numbers on a lot of these things because the press at this time too is very highly biased and many of the reports that will follow will vary so wildly and often skew so far one way or the other that it's really hard to pinpoint it down. But I think that we are well within the right frame set to say it's a disproportionate number of police given how many workers end up coming to this rally. The weather, the three or four days of striking at this point, it really kind of dampens people's spirits. And so it is not at all a huge, massive outturn. Uh, when you're talking about 30,000 people or 80,000 people marching in the street and a couple thousand maybe showed up to this rally, it's not that many. And then Spies is speaking. He's there um, and he, I think, you know, has a pretty good um, mentality on things. This is just a little quote of what he says, but he says there seems to prevail the opinion in some quarters that this meeting has been called for the purpose of inaugurating a riot. Hence these warlike preparations on the part of the so-called law and order. However, let me tell you at the beginning that this meeting has not been called for any such purpose. The object of this meeting is to explain the general situation of the eight hour movement and to throw light upon various incidents in connection with it. So Spies is no dummy. He immediately says, look around, look at all these police. They clearly think this is something. We're not that. That is not what we're here to do. He says this clear as day. So he knows what the situation is. And by all accounts, everything is super calm. He speaks, then Parsons, Fielden at the end. Um, Apparently, Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison Sr., who, if you remember, our world's fair episode of 1893 he actually gets mentioned uh because spoilers that's gonna be around the time that he gets assassinated um carter harrison senior um he's there so the mayor of chicago comes to this rally uh and it's so calm that he comments about how peaceful and organized it is and he leaves he walks home away from this 
rally. And Harrison was just fascinating as a little sidebar. He managed to have the support of many business owners, industrialists, while also appealing very broadly to the working class. Um, so he sort of managed to really walk a fine line um, as showing a lot of support for things like the eight hour movement while still managing to stay buddy buddy with the kinds of guys who are gonna fund your campaign. So Harrison's a really interesting guy. But this gives you an idea of the vibe. It's so peaceful, the mayor's there, and he's just like, all right, guys, kind of boring. Bye. Peace out. <laughs> he goes home. Crowd starts to dissipate due to the during the speeches because it's still raining. Uh, 10.30 p.m., as Fielden is finishing his speech, police arrive en masse, marching in formation and calling for speakers to stop speaking and the crowd to disperse. There's only a couple hundred workers left at the Haymarket at this point, and there's 170 policemen with Winchester repeating rifles marching toward them. And what happens next is chaos. And this is kind of like the OK Corral. When you, if you listen to that episode, there's no clean narrative here. Everybody who talks about this later has their experience, but also their own slant. And so there's no, what happens next is really sort of, um, it is muddy at best. As best that we can tell, a homemade bomb is thrown into the path of the police and explodes, killing Matthias Deegan and wounding several others, some of whom will die later on. It is not known at this uh, to this day who threw the bomb. No idea. The police are going to open fire. There's gunfire between the police and the demonstrators. It's again, it's impossible to truly distinguish who fires first. There's obviously no videotape back then, so we do not know. Um, we don't know where most of the shots are even coming from. So ballistics in those days, they don't really have the sort of investigative tools that they would have today to sort of make that determination. Most sources agree, however, that the police are actively firing into the crowd, reloading and firing again. So most sources are going to pin this, that the police are the ones sort of continuing to fire. One anonymous police source says that many officers are wounded by each other's revolvers. It's 10.30 at night. It's dark. It's chaos. Gunshots are going off everywhere. No one knows what's going on. And the second gunshots started going off, people start screaming and running in the opposite direction. So it is complete non uh, mayhem. There is, um, it's dark. No one really knows what's happening. And then in five minutes, less than five minutes, the square is empty except for casualties. So imagine, if you will, you know, you've got at one point a thousand people, you're down to about 400, and then it's no one but bodies on the ground. The Chicago Herald describes the scene as wild carnage the day after. We, at this point, believe seven total police officers and at least four workers are killed with more than 70 wounded. That said, it's really impossible to know the true number of workers killed or wounded because many of them would not go to the police. They would not seek medical assistance. There was a real fear of arrest or retaliation, which they are not wrong to be afraid of that. And so I think we can safely assume that there are many more people impacted by this that are just lost to history. And this is my fun fact that I literally, when I was working on this, had to stop and go run and tell my husband that this day, in Chicago PD history is still the single deadliest incident of officers being killed in the line of duty. Seven police officers at one time. Huh. Okay. Huh. That's, I mean, it's 2022. Huh. Um, and huh. 1886 is still the single deadliest 
day. So I just thought that was sort of a fascinating little bit of like police history. And it's nuts. The chaos does not stop after this because this incident, it, it's just a powder keg. We've had years yes. and months and weeks of clashing. And now this incident, bombs, gunshots, dead bodies. The police are on a rampage. Yes. The arrests, 200 arrests initially to try to find the bomber. That's what they're trying to find initially. And they're going to go after everybody. They do. They go after August Spies and the staff of his newspaper. They're all going to be arrested. The next The day. next day. Looking for evidence of a planned conspiracy and some of what they find is suspicious. Uh, they find the original flyer with the arm yourself wording. So that's not great. Not great. Um, they, many associates of Spies and other activists are interrogating and, interrogated and questioned and everybody starts pointing fingers. And as you might expect, they start pointing fingers at everybody else. So it is a whole mess. Ultimately, there is going to be a trial. There are eight defendants in the trial of uh, Illinois versus August Spies et al., which begins in June, so like a month later. And I would just like to pause on the fact that this today, a trial like this would take years to prep for. This is not something that happens fast, but yet a month later, the city is ready to mount a prosecution. Um, and no one, no one's being charged with throwing the bomb. No. No one's being charged with actually killing anybody the charges are accessories to the murder of officer deacon so yes. this is how they're going to justify rounding up these individuals and putting them on trial Speece, albert parsons reverend fielden uh, are all part of this trial uh there are eight of them so the other five are adolf fisher who was a typesetter uh, at the newspaper that was at the rally but left before the bomb exploded so he wasn't even there Michael Schwab, editorial assistant at the paper, who was speaking at another rally at the time of the explosion, so he wasn't even there. George Engel, who was home playing cards during the rally, so he wasn't even there. And Louis Ling, bombs and bomb-making materials were found at his home. And Oscar Neb, Neba, uh, was associated with the paper. A couple of things jump out to me immediately, <laughs> is that first of all, Many of them weren't there. And second of all, these are all German names, except for Fielden. These are all, I would imagine, either immigrants or the children of immigrants. So that's that jumps out to me. Several of these guys weren't even there. Like, it is demonstrably, provably fact that they were elsewhere. Okay, just going to say that. There we go. Yeah, most of the, the men that are put on trial have direct associations with the paper. All of these, in fact, are people who either worked at the paper, supported the paper, were engaged with Spies in some way. All of them are active organizers in the labor movement. So even the ones that aren't there, Fisher, Engel, Schwab, these are guys that are known for their labor activities. So they're certainly being targeted because of that. And again, they're not really truly trying to find who threw this bomb. They're really just using this accessory charge to round up whoever they might deem as dangerous yeah. and put them on trial, right? Um, they actually do have a pretty good suspect for the bomb thrower, a man named Rudolf Schnabelt. Um, He was an activist, a brother-in-law to Michael Schwab. He does kind of deny it, but then he also says a lot of things that are kind of like, if I had done it. Um, so he's sort of their one like lead suspect, but he flees the country. Oh, okay. well, that's smart. But out of these eight men, only one, one has any real sort of 
maybe chance of having been involved with violence, and that's Ling, who has bombs and bomb-making material in his home. His landlord basically turns him in and says, hey, this guy's got a bunch of stuff in his place that I find kind of suspicious. Um, and we'll talk about what happens with Ling in a little bit. But this is clearly not about what happened in Haymarket. It's about how do we tamp down yes. on these movements and who who are the faces? Yes, who are the faces? Who are the big names? Who are the people that the workers know? Yes. And this is a sham trial. Like, as you might expect, there's open bias against the defendants and all the jurors that are seated admit to having a bias against these defendants. We are obviously not lawyers, but I really do encourage people to read. We'll put some links in the comments or in the uh, show notes about like a breakdown of the entire jury selection process, which is so ludicrous. It, it's it's crazy to me that they were like, oh, you actually actively hate these men. You would be perfect for the jury. Right. right. Oh, I, that, that makes me insane. Uh, testimony from 118 people, including four of the defendants. The defense will claim that there was evidence linking the Pinkerton agency to the bomb, which was is a belief widely held by workers throughout. There is chemical analysis that li links Ling and his materials to a fragment found in Deegan's body. So there actually is some evidence against Ling. There is, of, of the eight, somewhat compelling evidence that Ling could have been involved in the construction of the bomb or was certainly engaging in a similar practice to the bomber. Sure. Um, and we probably at some point really should do an episode on the Pinkertons. Just thinking that. This claim is not out of line with what was being used. The Pinkertons were actually used a lot by employers to infiltrate unions, mm -hmm. to be strike busters, yep. to go after organizers. So while this might wreak a little bit of conspiracy, this is something that um, would not have been out of line. Uh, and again, we can't say, no one can really say for sure. We have no idea uh, to this day where that bomb came from and who threw it. But um, of the eight, the only little bit of evidence that comes forward is Ling's bomb fragment. Yep. And yet, they're all found guilty. Shock. Stunned. Uh, Neb gets 15 years in prison, but not before calling out the Chicago Police Department as the true anarchists for their gang-like behavior, which I kind of... Listen, I kind of enjoy that. I honestly, that. it's just too long to quote because he speaks on the, when he's being sentenced, he speaks for like five minutes. But he basically says, you know, you're, you're using these labels on us. But no. look at what your police force has done for the last four weeks, hauling people out of their homes, destroying mm -hmm. their property. You know, he really is like, they run around free of the law. What is anarchy? if not feeling that you are above the law. Right, um, exactly. And so I love that as soon as he knows he's not gonna be sentenced to hang, he's like, <laughs> let me tell you what I really think. There you go. Fielden and everyone else is sentenced to hang, sentenced to execution by hanging. Fielden and Schwab have their sentences commuted to uh, life in prison by the Illinois governor. And Ling eventually commits suicide in his, his jail cell. The day of the execution. So he takes matters into his own hands. There you go. Um, the day of the execution is November 11th, 1886. So again, this riot happens on May 4th. The trial and execution is, they are executed in November. Speece, Parsons, Engel, and Fisher, they sing the Marseillaise, which is the anthem of the international revolutionary movement. Uh, Speece says, quote, 
The time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today, which is great. The aftermath of this, predictably, uh, there's a massive lockdown on labor. There is a massive shutdown of all labor movements, organizing, not just in Chicago, but all across the country. There are going to, cities are going to initiate martial law, including Chicago, in the aftermath of this. And you got to imagine this is making national headlines. This is not just in uh, Chicago. New York is reading about this. Uh, there's industry in um, Boston and a bunch of other places. They're all reading about this. And so there's going to be a national basically crack down on these sort of nascent labor movements. Employers regain the upper hand and the eight, eight hour workday is thrown out. In some places, legislation is passed forbidding it, outlawing it in and response to this. Exactly. And if you listened again to our Francis Perkins episode, we talk about at that point and Francis Perkins is, gets active because of the Triangle Factory fire in 1911. They're still agitating for a 10 hour workday then. So this gets thrown out and does not get revisited for decades. So this is a huge, real big setback to organized labor, to the goals that they have been trying to work for. Uh, police are going to raid immigrant communities, shake down labor activists, and harass labor groups. Um, this is going to be our first big red scare. Yay! I mean, we're so talking gonna... about labor, but also these sort of shakedowns and harassment of political groups, you know, for a country that um, has freedom of speech, right? There's a real lockdown mm -hmm. on that freedom of expression. They're going to try to lock down press that is foreign language. They're going to try to lock down press that is sharing what the police deem as dangerous ideas. And so we talk a lot about this sort of in a 20th century context. Um, certainly, if you've been on Rebecca or I's Embassy Row tour, we talk about the Red Scare in sort of the summer of 1919, yeah, but this is know. something playing out in 1886 as a direct response to what happens in Haymarket. Right, and socialism, in 1886, it's also important to mention socialism is not quite the dirty word that it is, certainly in 2022, but it's also like, there's no communism yet, like, commun well, there is, but <laughs> communism hasn't taken over the Soviet Union yet, so it's not, like, we have a different position on socialism than they did then. They're not as big a boogeyman, but you're also still seeing people going after labor activists and um, socialists and people who are of an, a more socialist or anarchist bent. Uh, the defendants become martyrs and unions will be galvanized by this action. So they are set back, but they are not defeated, which is also very um, uh, important. Uh, although it does take, like this is a massive setback for organized labor. It's going to take another 20 years really uh, before you're starting to see even the most incremental gains uh, from what they have lost after Haymarket. Well, and the way in which um, Francis Perkins inspired by Triangle, this is going to be an inspirational moment, though, or a, a turning point for young members of this movement. Um, when we start talking about men like Samuel Gomper, some of these early labor leaders, as we get to the turn of the 20th century, they will reference Haymarket. They will talk about what happens mm -hmm. at Haymarket. So it does become sort of this this moment uh, there. But the setback is very real um, and, and it is unfortunate. Um, it's going to be a very real uh, sort of slowdown uh, in terms of moving labor forward in this country. Yes. And you may be shocked, but there is a DC connection to this of course story. Um, if you have been to Washington, DC, you might know that we actually have a national law enforcement memorial. So it's in Judiciary Square. It's right across from one of my favorite places, the National Building Museum. And uh, it lists 
the names of those that have been killed in law enforcement officers who've been killed in action. And on that wall is Matthias Deegan. His name was submitted um, mm -hmm. as, you know, killed, killed in the line of fire. So you can actually find him listed on the law enforcement memorial in Washington, D.C., which I think is sort of like a little fascinating because I think we think of that as a more contemporary memorial. So, yeah, he's listed on the National Law Enforcement Memorial, which I find uh, sort of fascinating. There is in Chicago at the Waldheim Cemetery, which is now merged with another cemetery forest home. Um, there is a martyr's monument to um, the four that were hung um, and other activists, people like Emma Goldman, have chosen to be buried near that grave or to have their graves buried near this sort of martyr site. And so um, there is a little memorialization. And then if you go to Chicago today uh, in the present day, there is a Haymarket Memorial. It's actually a hay wagon with sort of figures standing on it. That's where the speakers were. They were speaking off the back of a hay wagon. They weren't even on a stage or anything, uh, which to me sort of paints a picture of like, this is not a rally the way we think of rallies today. This is a group of people on a corner, you know, just sort of speaking their minds. Um, that memorial, though, is new because in 1889, just three years after this incident, the city, primarily funded by um, industrialists and the police department, put up a memorial to Officer Deacon. And it was the first known statue of a police officer in the United States. And here's the thing. That statue still exists. It's just not there anymore because it turned out to be kind of a problem. Uh, they had to constantly keep repairing it and rebuilding it because of vandalism. And at one point, it was hit by a streetcar. And the operator claimed that the failed brakes were at fault. But then he later said he was sick of seeing that policeman with his arm raised. So may have been purposefully hit by a streetcar operator. They ended up having to move it so many times that today it's basically at Chicago PD headquarters in Chicago, uh, no longer in an easily accessible public place uh, because of, of, like of all of the sort of incidents. Um, so today, I think a little bit more fitting, something that acknowledges, right, the speakers, acknowledges the event, um, the statue itself, and we'll put a link, of course, in the show notes to it. Um, it's really quite cool. It's, I think, a cool work of public art. But cool. that's the Haymarket Affair. That's the Haymarket Inc Affair. Incident, See, labor. Incident, I guess. I, um, you know, I've always, until we started doing this, I didn't know a whole lot about Haymarket. Spoiler alert, this actually, this pod was requested by my husband, actually. He thought this would be fun for us oh, to talk Kirk about. Oh, was right. It was um, fun. It was really fun. And I didn't really ever understand why, like, it feels like they reinvent the wheel so many times with labor in the later part of the 1800s and even into the early 1900s. And this kind of makes sense to me now, why they, like, um, this keep, the setbacks keep happening. And this is a big public event. And the, the ripple effects are controlled by a media that is controlled by the people who are owning the factories. So that's kind of what you're seeing here. Also, just as this fun little um, uh, mention for everybody, uh, August Spies, who we've talked about extensively, his last name is spelled Spies. And so every time I did research into this, I was like, wow, there are spies? And it just threw me all off the whole time. Anyway, um, thank you guys for coming along with us. Uh, and thank someone uh, who, well, thank a labor union. It's September, so we're, um, we're going to do some labor history next time as well. And come and join us. It'll be a lot of fun. So thank you guys very much. And 
talk to you Bye, next guys. time. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye.